you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pond! Welcome to I Cast Pod, a podcast about D&D. I'm Mike, your host, DM, and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about being a dungeon master, what's involved, what rules you need to know, what makes for a good or bad DM, managing player expectations, pre-built campaigns versus homebrew, NPC tips, and lots more. So let's get started. What's involved? So you decided to be the DM for your group. Welcome to your second job. Just kidding. But being a DM does involve more work than being a player. Players just turn up with dice, character sheets and notebooks, and they're good to go. As a DM, there's a lot of prep you have to do before you get to the session. You may have to draw out maps, write plot points, prepare dialogue and exposition, and work out things like traps and monsters that are a good challenge for your group. As well as XP and treasure. Your main job, though, is actually managing your players' expectations. The better you can do this, the smoother your game will run, and the better time will be had by all. More on this later. What makes a good DM? Matt Colville, a long-time player and DM, puts it best, I think, when he says, You only have fun if your players have fun. Taking on the mantle of DM means an unspoken contract between you and your players, which boils down to this. You have agreed to provide them with entertainment. If you deliver a campaign that only involves searching a single room for rat droppings, which turn out not to be there, chances are you're doing your players a disservice. A good DM aims to provide their players with an interesting adventure that's fun to play, because that's what we're all doing. We're playing a game for fun. If it's not fun, then your players have every right to stay home and do their taxes, wash the dishes, or find something else more fun to do. So when designing your campaign or prepping a pre-made one, put your players first. Think about what would make them happy. The lamest way I can think to put it is that as the DM, you're the facilitator of fun. Just for kicks, here's the definition of facilitator. A facilitator is a person or organisation that helps another to do or to achieve a particular thing. Which I think is actually a good definition of a DM. You're there to help and guide the players on their journey. In-game, it might be to find and kill the BBEG, big bad end guy, girl or group. Discover a lost treasure or save the world. But in the meta game, it is always to have fun, first and foremost. You should be hoping for your players to do well, and occasionally even enabling that to be the case. More on this later. But at the very minimum, you should be celebrating their victories and commiserating their losses as if you were one of them. Because really, you are. What makes a bad DM? By contrast, a bad DM puts their own good time before that of their players. They might throw monsters whose challenge rating far outstrips the party's level just to watch them squirm, or worse, to watch their characters die. No one wants their character to die for the most part, so killing them kills the fun for that player. Contrary to what you may have heard, 
The DM is not supposed to be an antagonistic force. Just because you control monsters and evil-aligned NPCs doesn't mean you should play that alignment yourself. If anything, a DM should fall somewhere between true neutral and neutral good on the alignment chart. You're technically supposed to be true neutral, but if you're not rooting for the party even a little bit, I'd say you're doing it wrong, personally. Will Wheaton also has a credo, which is, don't be a meaning don't cause trouble for the sake of it. Really, Will's credo is almost a distillation of Matt's just put another way. Don't make things unnecessarily hard for your players just because you get a power trip from doing it. If your goal as a DM is a TPK or total party kill, don't be surprised when your group doesn't come back. Responsibilities. Okay, so we've touched on the responsibilities you have to your players, but what else do you need to manage as a DM? If you're running a pre-made campaign, you need to have read ahead to know the major plot points. You don't necessarily have to read the whole thing cover to cover, although that wouldn't hurt, but far enough ahead that you should know what should happen at each session. If you're homebrewing a campaign, and I would suggest that you don't if it's your first time, just to make things easier on yourself. But if you are, then you need to world build like crazy. More on this later. You'll also need to know what NPCs will crop up, a little about each one. And if you're going to do voices, I suggest working out what each NPC will sound like ahead of time and noting down accents, as well as anything else pertinent to their speech. You'll need to know the basic rules. Things like speed over different types of terrain, the order of combat, when to ask for ability checks, how to set a difficulty class or DC, and more. It also helps if you know how to roll a character, as your players will look to you for help when creating theirs. Don't worry though, lots of the rules are actually pretty easy. Session Zero I recommend that you have a Session Zero, as this can help get your campaign off to a great start. In a session zero, you have a Q&A session with your players, manage some expectations, roll characters, and if you have time, I'd also recommend doing a short, fairly easy combat encounter. The Q&A should involve you as the DM explaining what sort of campaign you're going to run, including setting. Is the campaign taking place in Faerun, Eberron, Avernus, Ravnica, or across several of the planes of existence? It's a great time to ask what your players expect from the campaign. Do they want combat, roleplay, or exploration heavy, or a balance? And also, what to expect from you as the DM. The combat encounter can be as simple as a few monsters in a single room. You can tie it into the main campaign, or have it as a standalone one-shot. It allows the party to get used to things like the order of initiative, particularly if there are players in the party new to the game, and also lets them try out their skills, spells and abilities. As well as develop the beginnings of inter-party cooperation. Why make it an easy encounter though? Why not make it super challenging? Because the encounter is like dipping your toe in a pool. It sets the expectation for what's coming. If you teach your party early on that they should expect their combat encounters to be gruelling slogs where the victory is not assured, 
it sets the tone for the campaign as a whole. Not everyone, and especially not many new players, will be up for every encounter running the knife edge between life and death. If your entire party is comprised of Dark Souls fans, then fine. You know they're gluttons for punishment. Remember though that these are level 1 players. They have few abilities yet, and probably not a lot of hit points. Most video game RPGs start you off in an area where your challenges are less, because building up your players with a few wins makes them want to play more. The psychology of this will have been studied by the companies that create the games, so it's worth paying attention to. It's better to start easy and then build up the challenge as you go. Rules you should know. I mentioned certain rules you should have down, such as movement, combat, and ability checks, etc. So let's go over them. Walking over difficult terrain halves movement speed, so a movement speed of 30 feet becomes 15 feet. Combat order is roll for initiative, establish places of players and NPCs, and then start an initiative turn. Players can move up to their speed and perform an action. Have a listen to the previous episode, What is D&D, for more info on actions. Ability checks. You should ask for an ability check whenever a player asks to try something that has a reasonable risk of failure with consequences. So, if a player hands an NPC a coin, no ability check is needed because A, it's an easy task that most people should be able to accomplish, and B, there are no real consequences of failure. The player would just have to pick up the coin again. If a player tries to scale a wall, an ability check should be asked for, usually acrobatics or athletics, because falling off the wall is a realistic risk, with failure having consequences such as the loss of hit points up to character death, depending on the height of the wall and what's around it or at the bottom. Difficulty class is pretty easy too. Generally it will go from 0 to 20 at earlier levels and up to 30 or higher at higher levels due to bonuses, etc. On the 0 to 20 scale, an easy task would have a DC of 5, medium 10, hard 15, and extremely hard 20. Obviously, you can tailor this to your own style of play. I've used DCs of 12, 17, and so on. Generally, though, you think about how hard something would be to achieve, take into account as many relevant factors as you can, such as is the wall they're climbing wet, making it slippery? Is the door they're trying to open sealed by magic as well as a mechanical lock? And so on. And then assign a DC. Ask them to roll and describe the result. House rules. Do you have any particular house rules? For my group, we decided on a flanking rule, as honestly, I was surprised that 5e didn't have one in place. We decided as a group that if an enemy is engaged with the player or NPC and the player attacks from directly behind, then that player rolls with advantage. The monster may then decide to face the attacking player as part of their move, negating the advantage, but transferring it to the original player or NPC, unless it turned so that it could see both or moved away, risking two attacks of opportunity. If you have any in-house rules, Session Zero is the best place to bring them up so that players are reminded when the situation comes up in-game, rather than having a new rule sprung upon them in the heat of the moment, which can often feel unfair if it changes their expectations of what happens in that moment. Homebrew versus pre-built campaign. If you're DMing for the first time, I highly recommend going with a pre-built campaign. 
there will still be a ton of reading and encounter building for you to do, as well as lots of improvisation as your players do things you never expected, but it takes the heavy lifting of world building off you. This lessens your burden and also allows you to learn from some of the best campaign writers out there. Of course, you can always homebrew a story into an established setting such as Faerun or Eberron, using the relevant source books to ground your story in and provide a framework to hang it on. Otherwise, you need to establish a setting, decide whether magic is prevalent or rare, write out a government, pantheon of gods, establish societies, factions and many other things, many of which may never see the kind of coverage in-game that you feel that the amount of work you put in calls for. And that's just the way it is. Preparation time. Prep time for sessions varies depending on various factors. Have you read ahead to figure out the story arc for the next session? Do you need to create or draw out maps? More on this in a moment. Have you got all your encounters built, either on paper or D&D Beyond? Have you prepped a couple of other encounters just in case your party speeds through your content way faster than you thought they would? Make sure to give yourself enough time between sessions to prep. Maps and Minis versus Theatre of the Mind Theatre of the Mind is essentially the DM describing every scene like the narrator of a fantasy novel. While this might sound less work than drawing out maps either on paper or using tools like Roll20, Incarnate, etc. Theatre of the Mind requires a skill set involving writing, narration, performance and improvisation. Maps and minis can be useful for the players to get a general lay of the land, both on the macro and micro scale. I use the map that comes with the Essentials Kit of the Sword Coast on one side to give players a sense of where they are in the world, and the other side, which shows a map of the town of Phandalin, to navigate their immediate surroundings. I also use a dry erase battle map to either copy out the map of where they will visit this session, and cover the areas with black card until they are explored, or, if they're visiting a large area with many rooms, I then copy out the maps from the campaign guide room by room onto graph paper and put down each room as they encounter it. During combat encounters, I find that maps and minis are much easier for establishing distances and things like line of sight, as you can just refer to the map. Doing combat encounters as purely theatre of the mind is much more difficult for players to get a grasp on which enemies they can see or are in range of. You don't even have to spend a lot on monster minis. I use simple multicoloured board game person tokens to mark enemies and the players use those as well until they bought their own minis. I'll put a link in the show notes to them. Ultimately the choice is up to you, but I find a combination of the two works best for me and our group. You can also buy maps or multi-use tiles or entire scenery. But even with those, I feel Theatre of the Mind still definitely has a place in your game, and those descriptions can bolster scenery and set scenes and moods. Describing the scene. Suddenly from somewhere in the dense brush to your right side, a rustle catches your attention, immediately followed by a volley of arrows that whistles past your head, thudding solidly into the side of the wagon you've been walking beside. The horses pulling the wagon Rear and Winnie stopping in their tracks. A quick glance confirms that the rest of your party is in similar straits. What do you do? This is a good example of a description that feels individual to each player, but also encompasses the group. 
Your descriptions should not just be factual lists of the party's surroundings and creatures they face, but should also engage the senses with evocative descriptions. The best way to do this is to think about not only sights, but sounds, smells, temperatures and feelings. Consider these two descriptions. You walk into the mouth of the cave. The walls are made of rock and the ceiling is about 10 feet high. It is wide enough for two of you to stand abreast. The floor is hard earth. There is a breeze coming from further inside. Versus, the mouth of the cave gapes like a drooling moor with tangled roots writhing through the sodden earth. The temperature drops noticeably as you step inside and you feel goose flesh prick the skin on your arms and the nape of your neck. There is a peaty smell of earth in the air, mixed with a faint, sickly sweet smell of rotting meat. The rock walls drip with what almost looks like perspiration. Your grip tightens on your weapons, already drawn in anticipation, as a fell breeze groans from deep within, ruffling your hair on its way past. You give a sideways glance to the party mate at your side, and grimly press on deeper into its dank bowels. Not only is this more evocative, it engages the imagination more, and again it speaks to each party member as if individually, but because of the style of narration, it applies to all of them. Tools Generally, as a DM, you should have access to the three main source books, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. The PHB is still the book you'll refer to most, as it contains many of the rules for playing the game and really is indispensable. The DM's guide gives you information on running a campaign and is particularly useful if you are homebrewing in any capacity. The Monster Manual gives you lots of creatures and beings to throw at your players. Be mindful of the challenge rating when picking monsters, but also look through the stat block, paying careful attention to the creature's abilities. For example, the giant toad can be way more dangerous near water than its challenge rating of 1 would have you believe. Here's user Role Persuasion on Reddit's slash r slash dnd next forum. There was a giant toad in my game. It grappled a character and then dragged him 20 feet underwater, and the following turn, it swallowed him and dove another 40 feet. It was terrifying. Other monsters that seem to be way more dangerous than their CR suggests are Intellect Devourers, all dragons, solars, elementals, and black puddings, amongst many others. I played in a game where the DM tossed in a black pudding early on, and it KO'd me in one round as a level 2 rogue. You want to make your encounters challenging, but not unwinnable, especially at early levels. As a player, nothing sucks worse than dying. As a beginner player, Nothing sucks worse than dying early in the campaign when you've barely got your character's mechanics figured out. A great tool to help you plan your encounters is the D&D Beyond Encounter Builder. Look for a link in the show notes. Although it currently states it's in beta, I've had no problems using it to build encounters for my current campaign. You can put in the number of players and their average level, and the builder gives you a rating of how difficult the encounter should be for the party. I'm currently running the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak from the Essentials Kit, which handily gives you a code to claim a digital copy of it on D&D Beyond, as well as a voucher for money off another sourcebook. I got the PHB so that I can give my copy to the party for use, 
and still look up things on my iPad during play. I think at some point I'm going to spring for the Monster Manual digital version as well, as my party seem to tear through my encounters currently with a combination of might and tactics, and I might need to throw some more dangerous monsters at them. For my party members listening, you've been warned. Other tools you may use are a note-taking app. I use Ulysses personally as I love markdown editors, but it requires a subscription for the full feature set. Other alternatives include Bear, Word, Pages, TextEdit, Notepad or Evernote. You may decide to run your campaign with digital tools to help, such as Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, DM Helper or Encounter Builder. There are also map-making tools, Incarnate, Wonderdraft, Campaign Cartographer, Asgar, Fantasy Medieval Town Generator, and as always, I'll put a link to all of these in the show notes. If you're homebrewing, I recommend World Anvil, which has a full world-building feature set, including interactive maps. You can start with a free account and move up to paid versions, which remove ads and add more features when you're ready. Music and ambient sounds. I like to use Sirenscape at my table for music, and especially for atmosphere-building ambient sounds and noises. They even have official D&D module sound packs, so that I know that going to Nomengard in the Dragon of Icespire Peak is as easy as tapping a button and all the relevant sounds are loaded. One downside is that the player needs to be open to play, so my phone's battery is pretty much dead by the end of the session. Other alternatives include DM DJ, tabletop audio, or just searching for D&D sounds on YouTube. NPC Tips NPCs may be given to you in the adventure module if you're using a pre-made campaign. Otherwise, you'll have to spend some time designing the NPCs the players would come across. My advice would be to prep each character with notes on things like background, accent and other relevant information. An NPC's background doesn't have to be an expansive work of personal history either. Just a few lines about where they're from, what they do and why should be enough. This way, you give the NPCs room to adapt and develop during sessions, rather than trying to shoehorn in a conversation about the backstory of your elaborately constructed bartender because your party didn't bother to ask. Another approach is one from a D&D meme I read recently that said to give all your NPCs funny voices and quirks, whichever one your players like, that's the important one. Remember to take your own notes about what the NPCs have said so that as they grow you don't contradict yourself. Nothing breaks the spell of immersion quicker than inconsistency. Designing encounters and scenarios. When doing anything as a DM, whether adding monsters to an encounter, designing NPCs or developing plot hooks, you should always be thinking about how those decisions serve the story. Look to be consistent in your choices. If you're playing in the Faerun setting, maybe adding clockwork airships is an odd choice, but you can probably get away with it if it serves the story. Is the BBEG a warforged warlock, perhaps? Everything you do should be in service to your story. But remember, your players collaborate with you in this story, so if something they do is a great idea, go with it and build it in somehow, as long as it fits. Monsters When rolling initiative for monsters, it's okay to group them. If I have six orcs attacking the party, it's easier for me and better for the flow of the game if I have them all take their turns at once rather than scatter their turns throughout the party's turns. Doing this leads to more opportunities for team tactics from the party, whereas a turn structure that breaks up the party's turns leads to more individualised tactics. 
unless your scenario or encounter means to split the party for story reasons, and it should only ever really be for story reasons, I'd avoid doing this. If you have a large group of monsters, it's okay to maybe split into two or even three groups in terms of initiative, but more than that makes the combat feel fragmented. Handling Awkward Players I said before that managing player expectations is a big part of what you do as a DM. One of the most important expectations you manage as a DM is that D&D is not a single-player game. It's worth stating to the party that if they are trying to achieve things as a group, they need to play as a group. If you've done this well, things should run smoothly, but it only takes a quick scroll over at r slash RPG Horror Stories on Reddit to see that sometimes you're going to come across players who don't abide by the Will Wheaton rule. In these cases, it's okay to suggest that this might not be the group or game for them, or to outright ban them from the table if their behaviour persists after being warned. I've run a game where one player didn't want to give out any details about their character, aside from what they looked like, and acted quite aggressively towards the other characters, but then expected the party to form around them and do the quest involved in their backstory. If there's no incentive for the other players to help you, then they probably won't want to. Players are generally incentivized by loot, intrigue, mystery, or the chance to do something cool, but the player was hoping that the mystery would be enough. Another player played their character as an agent of chaos, despite not having a chaotic alignment. He literally burned bridges in the game, trapping the party in a village on an island. He had a great time, but the rest of the party didn't. In both cases, an out-of-game chat with the players about how their actions affected the party and the game as a whole might have helped, but sadly the game fell apart not long after starting. Had I managed the players' expectations better, the campaign might have been longer. Occasionally DMs will hear the phrase, but that's what my character would do, usually as an excuse for aberrant behaviour. In these cases, remind players how their behaviour will affect the group and the story. And just like in real life, just because you can do something doesn't make it a good idea. D&D suffers a little from the fact that you can do things that would have severe repercussions in real life, whereas a skirmish with the city guard or even being locked in jail in-game can be no more than a minor inconvenience. Just because their character has a hatred of goblins does not mean they suddenly have to become a torturer. Some people hate dogs but manage not to kill them. A classic example is the rogue who can pickpocket and steal. Remind your rogue players that this does not necessarily mean they are a kleptomaniac with no impulse control. Good thieves rarely steal on impulse, rather planning their heists. At session zero in my current group, I outright banned stealing between players as it only leads to infighting, and often group spats that eventually end up with the group disbanding. NPCs are fair game, but even then, ask them to think about how their stealing might affect their standing in town and the group's reputation if they get caught. It's okay to have to look things up. As much as you should know the basic rules and how the game works, you don't need to be a walking D&D wiki in order to be DM. Back when I used to teach for a living, I was told, you don't need to know everything about the subject, just more than your students do. At the time, this seemed like a bit of a cheat, but actually it makes perfect sense. You don't have to cover to cover the DM's manual, monster manual, or even the adventure module. You just need to know enough to run the next session. Prep your maps, read and make notes on NPCs, and you're ready to go. 
Part of being a DM involves thinking on your feet, and the best advice I can give you is to be declarative. Decide things and stick to them. No one wants a wishy-washy DM that answers questions with, I suppose so, or I guess. Take a stance. Give yes or no answers where appropriate. Make decisions. The DM screen and DM magic. The DM screen is there for two reasons. One, it has lots of useful information on your side to help you run your campaign. Two, it hides your dice rolls. Lots of DMs fudge their dice rolls, either to stop a PC from taking fatal damage or just to help the party out. Remember, you're really on their side, and sometimes that means ensuring that they can continue to have fun. If they get down to zero HP, let them. Sometimes that's a good teaching tool, and they can learn how to approach encounters better. Generally, they can be easily stabilised by another party member or a potion. The 5e rule about damage, though, is that if a PC takes enough damage to be knocked out, and there is enough damage remaining than more than their HP total, they die. So if a character's max HP is 20, and they take 40 damage in a turn, it's game over. This is where I might fudge a roll so that they take enough damage to drop to zero, but not enough to die. You might also fudge any number of dice rolls, such as saving throws, ability checks, and so on. And it doesn't all have to be to help the party either. Remember, fun is the number one consideration. So maybe if the BBEG that the party are having fun fighting takes enough damage to die, maybe they make their death saving throws for round two. Generally, monsters die if they hit zero HP, unlike our beloved PCs, but bosses can have death saving throws if you like. It's your game. Run it however will be the most enjoyable. Reward your players. Give them loot. If the module says to give them 50 GP, and there are six members of your party, give them 60 to make splitting it easier. Give them magical items appropriate to the story, setting, and their level. Maybe have the items have a point of luck on them that the party can use like inspiration points. Give them a point of inspiration when they roleplay their character well or are a good teammate. Let them describe the final blow that takes down the monster. Matt Mercer has, how do you want to do this? But I prefer, tell us what happened. You're reaffirming that we're a team, DM included. So go ahead, boast about your kill to us. It seems to be pretty popular. DM guidelines. So to round things up, here are some guidelines when DMing. Fun first. Always. Don't make it a drag because you wrote a load of exposition that your players sidestepped. Learn the basic rules. Make sure you know how combat works, how movement works, how advantage and disadvantage and the rest work in-game. Manage player expectations. Make sure they know how things are going to work in the setting your playstyle, etc. Serve the story. Make sure your choices fit with the story. Remember, nothing kills immersion quicker than inconsistency. The rule of cool. If your players want to do something cool, find a way to make it work. They'll thank you for it. Make life easy for yourself. Don't do work you don't have to do. Maybe let your players decide which NPC is the important one. Fudge your roles if the situation calls for it. And that about wraps it up for episode two. Thanks very much for listening.
If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram as at icastpod. I create all the content you see and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Thirdly, tell friends or anyone you know who's interested in D&D about the show. Thanks. Until next time, friends, may Timora bless your endeavours. (laughs) 